Good afternoon, good morning, good evening, wherever you are in the world. I am Russell Tovey. And I'm Robert Diamant. And this is a very special live episode of Talkar, created in partnership with Acast and Law Coffee for the Law Secret Podcast Experience. However, I'm afraid to say not everyone was able to make it along. No, that's right. Sadly, I wasn't there to be like, welcome to Talk Art this time because I had COVID and I was in bed and I'm really devastated because I was so excited about today's guest. He is a really great friend of both of ours and someone that I know inspires people all over the world daily for many reasons, which you might well have explored. Absolutely. So as you will know by now, Robert and I are huge coffee drinkers we're huge coffee fans we often need one to get us going in the morning and it is always the perfect accompaniment to a great conversation something we have many of on this podcast we love law coffee so we were delighted when they asked us to partner with Talkart as part of the law secret podcast experience yes that's right law coffee artists take time to create perfection in every cup of law coffee with layers of flavor masterfully blended through every sip while enjoying some delicious coffee Russell got talking to an artist, as I mentioned earlier, and someone who can be considered a master in their own field, the iconic DJ Fat Tony. That's right. Much like a law coffee artist who is expertly trained in selecting the right beans and finding the perfect blend and layering of flavors in every cup, DJ Fat Tony is a true master when it comes to finding the perfect blend of tracks and masterfully laying them to take the crowds on a journey when he's behind the decks. So if you want to learn more about how art and music inform each other, what a musical masterpiece actually sounds like, plus DJ Fat Tony's own unique take on creativity, then you are very much in the right place. I'm so jealous. Enjoy, everyone. I'm going to be listening just as much as you are. Hello, hello. So I'm... Uh, thank you so much. Good morning. Good morning. I'm, uh, I'm on my own today, which is a bit discombobulating because Rob has something called COVID. Don't know if you've heard about that. Um, so I'm here and I'm very excited to be here and you're all caffeinated, I hope. Um, this is a very special live episode of Talk Art. It's created in partnership with Law, as we've just heard, and Acast for the secret podcast experience. And uh, I'm very excited to have a very dear friend joining me today. He is um, a brilliant communicator and a superstar DJ. Please welcome to the stage, Fat Tony. So, um, we're going to have a flat white made for us by Deepak, who is uh, the barista from Law. Come on down, Deepak. Get a round of applause for Deepak, he's a legend. Deepak's going to, I think me and you have got two different beans, but Deepak's going to talk us through it, but Deepak's also going to talk us about the art of coffee making, because there is a skill to it, because, you know, maybe you've not enjoyed the coffee you've had in your life, Tony, because, go on, sorry, you can No, absolutely, well, good morning, first of all, we've got an oat flat white, who is the oat man, here you go, so that's using our ristretto blend, which I'll talk to you about just a moment, Okay. yourself, we've got a regular flat white, Regular. Um, that's made using our Columbia blend, you'll notice there's a little bit of latte art there, um, that shows, oh yes, um, it says Laura on the top, yeah, absolutely, so the beans are 100% Arabica, the ristretto that you're drinking just over there, it's a more intense blend, Um, it's inspired by the markets of Sumatra, so it should tastes quite like fresh, spicy, and got a bit of a complexity to it in terms of the finish. It's very complex. And then yourself here, you've got the actual Columbia, and it should have quite a nice finish that's quite sweet and uh, distinct just at the edge. So 
that's us from Law. Enjoy your flat Amazing. whites, gents. Thank and uh, I'll, I'll get back to it watching, watching you two. See Thank you, soon. you very much, Dean Pike. Right. Round of applause for Dean Pike. Um, yeah, I mean, there, there is an art that obviously goes into coffee making, I guess. Maybe you've had bad coffee over the years and that's why you've avoided it. There is a real art to it. And, I, you know, it's really weird because you just think coffee's coffee, right? Got, you know, but it's not. Different places you go and you think... Exactly. Oh. You know what I mean? How does this compare to the other ones you've had? Uh, this is really nice, actually. You're on Toolcart, so this is Amazing. Law and Toolcart, and we're going to talk about art. We spoke mm. about art. We're good friends. We talk about art a lot. Yeah, we do. And you're a DJ, and I've always thought, you know, I speak to stand-up comedians, and I go, do you, is this like performance art? And I guess with DJing, lots of sound artists get frustrated because people assume it's just music mm. or they're a DJ. But yeah. do you see what you do as a kind of performative oh. sound art experience? A hundred percent. You know, listen, there's, there's different types of people that, when it comes to music, there's people that listen to music and there's people that feel music. You feel art. Art is something you feel. You look at it and you think, mm. if you just look at it and, just, and you're, you don't feel it, there's no magic in it. Do you know what I'm saying? Mm. So with, with my job, my job is to make people feel what I do. So I feel if you're if you lot suddenly got up and started dancing, I would feel that energy, and then that energy would I would project back into the dance floor, and that's how the magic happens, and that's how you all have a good night out. But if you lot just sitting there like that and I'm standing here DJing, so we're not going to go very far, and that would not be art. The art is my art is is to make people dance. So. For me, I, I think that there is, it is, a, it's, it is a, an art, it's a learned art form. You know, some people are musically gifted and, and you know, music's been in my family forever. You know, my great-grandmother was a uh, classical pianist and, you know, so, and we've, it's always been in us, music. And I just think that when we nurture something and we find something that we're really good at, it becomes an art form. We become artists at it. When did you start getting onto the music scene and actually being able to perform yourself? I, I, I come from a family that used to play music on a Sunday all day. My dad, my dad had, was one of these people that had to have the best amp, the best record player, the best of everything, you know, on the estate in Battersea. This is Marantz, you know, he'd come up with all these names. And he loved his music and it was always played. My, I had an older brother that was a, 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 who thought himself as a bit of a lover's rock DJ. So there was always music being played from either the speakers on the windowsill outside the house. What's a lover's rock? What's that? Lover's rock, you know, it's like Janet Casey Games, that kind of vibe, you know, just like a sort of like a laid back, more like melodic reggae, okay, you okay. know, it's like more soulful. Right, right, right. Um, so he kind of really loved that vibe. And so growing up in our house, there was always music. So I, I kind of was just always drawn to it. Do you know what I mean? It wasn't something I set out to be. I didn't think, oh, I'm going to be a DJ. Mm. I just wanted to go to parties. Mm -hmm. You know, and suddenly that came along and thought, okay, I get paid for going to parties now. Uh, and, th and that's kind of how it worked. But then, I, then it became a job. And when it was a job, it wasn't something I loved because therefore it was something I had to do to make so you money. Resented it in so some you resented it. To a certain extent, you know, I think that it was a way and means for, for a very long time for me to... Uh, and when I say use the word life, I, I'm going to use it very loosely, uh, for, for me to sustain a way of life, you know, whether it be, because my, my, you know, I went down the wrong path very quickly. So music was just a, 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 boy, a byproduct of that. It was a way and means of me, for me to get more of everything I needed. And then it wasn't until I got sober, uh, 
which is 16 years in January, that I really fell in love with music and my art form. That's when I really, it turned a corner. I've always loved music and I love what I do, don't get me wrong. I love great, great sounds, but it was when I got sober, I suddenly there was no longer a wall between me and music. Mm. The wall had been taken down and I could actually start to feel the music. Do you wow. know what I mean? And, and that is when everything changed. It changed everything. Because suddenly I didn't need other stimulants. Music gave me what I needed like coffee does today, but you know what I'm saying? It kind of just gave me everything I needed. I, I really, and I say this a lot, that the best drug you'll ever take is, is, is music. Music is, has the power to transform you, to take you from one place, transport you back in time, to have, you, all you need to do is put a track on it and close your eyes and people that are no longer with us are in that room with you. Because you have that connection to, that, to those people and to, to buy that sound. I don't know if anyone's ever done gong bath before, but you know the, the emotions that you get from sound. You did that recently, didn't you? <laughs> yeah, I discovered it in the woods. Yeah, like I was doing some TV, like some program for um, in the wilderness project uh, up in, in Sussex, and this girl was like, "I am doing gong bath," and I was like, "Right," oh. and I knew nothing of gong bath, and I was like, "Go on then, let's go and do this. Let's get this out of the way." And, you know, one of those jobs, and I was like. Uh, and it made me, I just like bawling my eyes out. Because it's a vibration. The vibration. So what, exactly, for people who don't know, what is a gong? So bath? it's a massive gong. <laughs> and, uh, like them bong and them Yeah, it's like, yeah. literally like that. But then they have like all these different like uh, sticks and instruments like, you know, that they use. And, and they do different shapes. And what it does is it, it sets off a different rhythm through you. So it's sound waves. And, and you, stand in, you stand in front of it or behind it and it literally the sound just goes through you. Wow. But what it does is it just, honestly, it just really, you feel it. For the first time, you can actually feel what music and those vibrations do to us. Does that change the way that you approach your DJing in some ways, that sort of experience? I think, you know, what it does is it opens your eyes to it. It makes you just think, okay, because if we listen to something, we're not really taking it in. You know, you're in your car, you're driving, you're listening to a track, and you start singing along to the words that you don't know and you make up your own words. You're not really connected to it. Mm. Do you know what I mean? It's, you know, uh, it's when you suddenly start to feel it and you're at home and you put... If you're, like, you know, I sometimes I'm in a really bad headspace. I'll go, hey, Siri, put on. And it's always George Michael, always, right? But, it, you know, because I relate to it. You know, it has, it has those... It's, it's, it gives you that, that magic moment of like, okay, things aren't as bad as they seem because you just take it in. It's like a warm blanket. I've always found such a link with DJs and artists mm. and the art scene. And has it always been that way? And why do you think there is such a like, synergy? I think, you know, it, it, it goes back, you know, years ago, I was, really, I, I was really good close friends with Keith Haring. And Keith was like, you know, my connection with Keith was two things, really. It was, it was his love of music, my love of art, uh, our love of men. And that was kind of like how, where we all gelled and we kind of would like travel around the world and you'd come to Paris. With so cool. Me. So how did you first meet Keith here? I met Keith in a toilet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I met Keith in a toilet um, at an um, area, nightclub in New York. And... Um, did you know who he was straight away? At that time, was he super famous? Oh, he was famous because, you know, I, I was... I, he, so basically, the first I ever heard of Keith was when Vivian Westwood 
put him, used him for the witch's collection. And he, and he had the, the fuzzy, fuzzy like pen felt stuff on the back of the jacket. And that was kind of like the first time I thought, oh, this, I really love this art, this street art. So basically, that was kind of my first connection with him. And then I was wearing that jacket in the toilet. No, and I did that jacket and I was like, oh yeah, because you're really Vivian, aren't you? And he was like, and I did the art on the back, and I was like, oh, okay, cool. And that was how the, the connection came. And then the next time I saw him was at Paradise Garage. And then blah, blah, blah. That was his favourite kind of place that yeah, doesn't exist now, but, yeah, it and it closed exist. during his lifetime. But that was in the East Village, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, on 18th. And that yeah. was the scene. And talking about Vivian Westwood as well, this is a designer you've had an altercation with. <laughs> <laughs> I've loads of altercations with I went to school with her son. He was in my class at school, Joe. Not a lot of people know that. I left that out of the book. But, um, and she used to ride her bike around our estate and be like, oh, everyone would be like, there's that nutty woman. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> there's that nutty <laughs> woman. Uh, yeah, woman and me have had lots of run-ins over the years. I won a big one outside the V&A. She had you up against the wall at yeah, one point. Yeah, by the throat. She th by the throat. She <laughs> thought you were being mean to her. Well, yeah, because she just basically, this is like the after she went, you know, Weldon went under. And Vivian came this back. This her store at the end of the King's yeah, Road. Chelsea, yeah, in King's Road. Uh, and, and, you know, it's, if any of you ever seen it, it's got a, a big clock outside that goes backwards. And it's an incredible, incredible shop for fashion history. Uh, you know, it kind of, they've had that shop since seditionaries, sex, and then it become World's End. And they, she'd lost everything and it'd gone under, and she, they didn't deal with Harris Tweeds, and she came back with this incredible collection, which was like mini Quinnies, crowns with Sarah Stockbridge modelling and all of that stuff. She opened the shop with no electricity, you know, and I went in there and, I, and her mum and her were working in there and I was like, I think it's really great that you've opened the shop with no electricity. Just like being nice, do you know what I mean? And she was like, oh, and I bought loads, of, I was with my friend Yumiko, and I was going to say, I bought loads of stuff. Yumiko bought loads of stuff for me, and, <laughs> <laughs> as it was back then. And uh, then we, we, that was it. And then I went to the V&A that week and, for an exhibition, and she was there, and she was like, I need to talk to you. And she dragged me outside. She said, I've known you for so many years, and you can always be so condescending. And I was like, what are you on about? She said, my mother... Oh, and I was like, oh, God, here we go. My mum said that when you left the shop, she was like, what a rude little man that is. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, what are you on about? She said, you are really patronising. I said, I think it's great. And she was like, don't you lie to me. And, like, literally had me against the wall. And what it was, was her mum like? Was her mum eccentric? Her mum, yeah. Her mum was very much like Vivian as well, yeah. You know, and that was kind of just like, and, she, and I said, time I was like, all right, I apologise if that's it. She wouldn't have none of it. She had me there in the corner, you know, at the top of the stairs at the V&A to the right. I was like in that alcove with her like, yeah, 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 in my face. Again, well, like music and fashion, music and art, there is such a, you know, being on the scene, you must meet so many incredible artists and designers constantly because you're the go-to DJ. Yeah, I mean, I work within fashion. I work with, you know, um, I work with a lot of a lot of designers. I have done all my life, really, even from the age of like 15, 16. You know, I, I kind of we come from that era where you had to create your own platform. You couldn't sit in your house and press a button and pretend that you're somewhere else that you're not, or you're suddenly setting up a profile pretending that you do this job when you don't really do that job. Mm. You know, we had to graft. So most of the, the majority of people that are at the top of their game now come from that era of grafting. Do you get what I mean? Yeah. And, 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 you know, and then 
people go, oh, you, you know, you've got loads of pop star friends, or you've got loads of, and it's like, no, those people were my friends before they had that job. You know, it just always happens that we come from a very creative time where art and fashion and music all went together. You know, um, they did, and they still do. You know, without music, you wouldn't have had the swinging 60s and you wouldn't have had pop art. You know, without 70s, you, without music, you wouldn't have had punk rock and fashion. They went hand in hand and mods, music and fashion, art. Peter Blake, all of this stuff that all goes hand in hand. And, you know, the, art, the artists become the image of that era. Right. So we use art to relate to different eras. Yeah, yeah. So if you see oh, a picture of the swing in the 60s, it was, it's likely to be a piece of 60s art. Yeah. You got I mean, like a Mary Quant image. That, you know, that's art. Or the Beatles. Or the Beatles. The, or Peter Blake all album art. cover, Sergeant Pepper. Yeah. You know, all of that stuff, it, it, you know, that's art that's gone on to change the world. Yeah, it's amazing. So, talking about Keith Haring and talking yeah. about all these icons, yeah. you also hung out with Andy Warhol in your time? <laughs> yeah, I did, yeah. And you said he was hard work? <laughs> he really was. He was so boring. He was just there all the time. You'd be like out and be like, we'd be somewhere and I'd turn, you'd turn around and he was like there. Like, you'd be like, oh, hi. And with his Polaroid, you know, camera. And it'd just be like... Uh, but it wasn't so much him, it was the people around him. They, they kind of worshipped him. Right. You know, so he'd have these three little queens always with him, Billy Boy, and, and they'd be like, you know, oh, Andy wants a drink. And we'd be like, well, go and get Andy a drink then. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah, literally, yeah. it was like Andy. Um, and I remember once, he, the first time I met him, he came to London, and he was in the car, and we just started this new night called Total Fashion Victim on a Tuesday at the Wag Club. It was the first place I ever DJed, and they were like, he, they came in, and we, Andy's, Andy Warhol's outside in the car, and he wants to know whether it's busy, and we were like, Andy Warhol can stay in the car. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> Literally, like, we care. Like, we care. This is London. We don't care. Do you know what I mean? And it's like, and he came in, and he's like, stayed for like three minutes or something, and left. And then, the a couple of weeks later, I was flying over to do... It was my first trip to New York. On Concord? At 18, yeah, which I, I went on Concord, yeah. Like, it was the first time I ever went on Concord. I went on it quite a few times after that as well. But, but you know, it's kind of like... Um, that's where it started really Andy, because my best friend was Boy George at the time. Still is my best friend. Uh, but, you know, and so we were living in New York, and, of course, everyone wanted to be George's friends, especially Andy. And it kind of just become like that. And then there was Keith, Andy. Wow. You know, um, Basquiat. Did you, you feel? Did you feel it? Because you time know, you lived in London for, for ages as well. Basquiat. Yeah. Did yes, you lived in London for about three years. I'm not going to tell you what we called him. <laughs> it's not nice. <laughs> oh, but yeah. Uh, but you know, yeah. But, but did you feel it? At the time, that scene, did you feel like you were part of that? Because retrospectively, you look at the period <coughs> no, history. No, when looking back on it, you just think, okay, that was, that was, that was the part. When, you, when you're living in that life, you don't, I don't look around myself and think, oh, God, I'm so lucky to be here. Do you know what I mean? All my friends are doing this. I was resentful of every one of them. <laughs> <laughs> Anyone yeah. that had a good job or was like being famous, I'd be like, oh, you know what I mean? You know what I mean? That'd be over soon. Uh, you know, <laughs> yeah, I get uh, relishing yeah. in their downfall. Yeah, yeah. Um, but no, you know, you, you really want, you're not really, you know, I was too busy having a good time. I was too busy having a party. I kind of didn't stop and think, okay, this is an amazing situation that yeah. I'm in. Okay, I'm at so-and-so's house and this is insane. There were those moments... 
But I, it was more about like, you know, meeting Jeff Stryker, or like a porn star or any of those people. You know, that, that was, to me, that was more amazing than yeah, yeah. standing next to boring Smelly Andy. Do you know what I mean? Than, than that. And that was kind of like really where it was at for me. So the scene at the same time in New York, you was obviously experiencing that in London at the same time. Well, no, in London, everyone in New York wanted everything that was going on in London. And, you know, we had four streets. That was it. We had Wardour Street, Greek Street, Thrift Street. That's where all the clubs were, on those streets. It was like, the, it was called the West End for a reason. Where are you going out and we're going up west? You know, we're going to the West End. Because that was Soho. That was where you were allowed to go out and party till 3 a.m. You know, it, it wasn't like now when, you know, I remember the, the Wag Club that we did first got its six got license. It was like groundbreaking. Do you know what I mean? Like we were allowed to stay open until six. And it was like, for a couple of months, everyone was like, yeah, till six. And they kind of like, maybe we're shut up for. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. People didn't, they didn't have the stamina to stay because it was like, okay, so why are we staying there till six? Do you know what I mean? And there's nowhere else. And it was the, when everywhere else started to get licenses that, it started to extend and go outside of London and bigger. And then suddenly you had Shoreditch, you had, you had like turnmills over in Farringdon. You had all these places. They seemed like distant other countries from the West End to travel in a cab. Who were the artists you would see? Like Derek Jarman, I Derek, think. Derek was, oh, Derek was a big one. Derek was always, you know, you had that Camden lot which I always put Derek under. And he came under that Mornet and Crescent crew. You had the John Maybreeze. Uh-huh. They, uh, you had Jeffrey Hinton. You had Princess Julia. They all lived in these how uh, these flats in Camden. Then further down, you had Binny. And you, you, you had the lovely... Um, you, uh, what's his name? Grayson. Perry, yeah. yeah. Grayson lived with Binny. They were like, they were the nature... Uh, Binny and her sister. Yeah, that's right. And they were neo-naturists. Yes. And we did, I did a drag act when I was 15 and we did Camden Palace, we did Heaven and all these places. And they did neo-naturist shows, Grayson, and they would paint their bodies like, as clothes. You know, it, like, <laughs> literally, you know, they're sitting there around, pretending to be around a campfire. That was their show. It was art. It was art. And then, you know, we had... Like, all of that going on, and it, it kind of... that. So that was London, it, you know, we all knew each other because we all went to the same clubs. So we all knew each other. Like, growing up with Lee, Lee Bowery, yeah. you know, people, you know, idolise him yeah. for, for the various reasons they should idolise him because he was incredibly creative and, 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 and a pure genius. But at the same time, just lunatic in the mm. sense of, like, you know, the things that we all got up to together. Yeah. Well, I, I think he was a huge muse for many people and still is. And for people like Lucian Freud. Yeah. And you hung out with Sue Tilly, who yeah, also Sue, modeled for yeah, Lucian modeled Freud. For Lucy, yeah. Kate Moss, who's also been a muse for Lucian Freud, but a muse yeah. for so many people. And best, I'm, you know, I'm best friends with all his kids as well, you know. With Lucian's kids? Yeah. You know, Bella and Rose and all of those people. So, you know, our lives have always crossed paths. You know, way back when, when Rose, uh, boy, who is Lucian's one of the older daughters, mm. she, she used to run this club called Fred's, which was a private members club in Soho. It's one of the first. You had the Groucho, which was kind of like, you know, uh, passed its sale by date a month after it opened. And then you had this other one, which it was back then. And then Fred's opened, and it was just off of uh, Dean Street to the left. Um, and she ran that for many years, and it was just like the most 
exciting members club there was. Wow. It was, on, it was so small and it was on three floors and you could just do what you wanted to do there. What do you, because you're right in the centre of it all, what do you think of the music and the art scene now, like today? You know, uh, I think it's just as amazing as it was then. You know, obviously nothing's new. You know, when you look at stuff and you can look at it in, in, in really tarnished eyes and think, oh, I've seen that before. But you've not seen it before. You've seen a likeness of it before. Do you get what I mean? It's kind of like, you know, I don't go out anymore because it's not the same. Thank God it's not the same. How boring would that be? Mm. Do you know, it's, it, everything has its day and it also has its next day. It comes around in circles. And I just think that music right now is in, is in a very exciting time again. Why is that? Why do you because think? the world's discovered house again. You know, uh, house music... Well, you talk about circles, it makes me think of Derek Jarman because his phrase, he said, if you wait long enough, the world moves in circles. Of course it does. And it's, and it's so true, you know. Within it's culture, like why fashion especially. comes in and out. You know, skinny jeans, flares, skinny jeans. You're looking flares. at the audience, by no, the way. Yeah, yeah, it's not yeah, looking you're at out me. Fashion. Yeah. But you know what I'm yeah. saying to you? It, everything comes around, and, you know, it's like... You know, we're, and, and we're driven by that. And, 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 and you know, it, we don't have tribes anymore. And that's the sad thing that I, I really miss. I think that... Tell us about tribes. Well, tribes, you know, as I, I touched on it before, we had punk and we had new romantics and we had, you know, the swinging 60s. We had mods. We had all of these different vibes. We had skinheads. What were you? Skinheads. I was everything. Uh, but would yeah. there be rivalry? Would you see them out? No, you know, like you mods know, and rockers. The thing is, here. I was too young to be a new romantic. I came right. on the end of that one. I was, there's five years, I was five years younger than all of my friends, even though I used to pretend I was 19 and I was 14. Do you know what I mean? Like, literally lie about my age until I got to 50 and then I embraced it. And I'm like, yeah, I'm lucky to be 50. But, you know, it was like, I always lied about stuff. So, you know, we had those tribes and there was like, people really made an effort to be a part of a tribe. You know, whether it be a skinhead, it wasn't a matter of just cropping your hair. It became a way of life. Punk was a way of life. Being a pirate wearing Westwood was a way of life. Being a buffalo girl was a way of life. All of this stuff, it wasn't just, you know, when you look at that stuff in, in fashion, it wasn't just about, okay, this is what that person's designed. There's a backstory to everything. So Buffalo Girl came from hobos living on the street, which came back, you know, hundreds of years of the way people used to dress in Africa. It's all, it's all has history related stuff. You know, most of the stuff that Vivian does comes from places in history. You know, whether it be jackets with armor. The Spanish like, Armada, for example. All of that stuff and the pirate look, and, you yeah. know. Um, Why do you think that is now then that we don't have these kind of different... We have labels instead. And people are kind of obsessed by wearing Balenciaga. I'm obsessed by it. I'm more obsessed than most people. And, you know... Uh, do you have on. like a uniform of one brand that you sort of wear? Are you trying to say I'm wearing Dior? <laughs> <laughs> no, you know what? I do... I, I really... I'm an addict, right? And so if I find something I like, I have to like it all. And, 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 and then I don't like to mix and match designers. I'm like, it's either all or nothing. And then I've got this new boyfriend. No, he's not new, but I've been with him for 18 months. He's a Balenciaga head. So I've suddenly got into Balenciaga and all summer I was wearing Balenciaga, which is like, you know, great in the summer because it's shorts and baggy T-shirts, you know, and it kind of like hid a... Uh, and magnitudes of sins as such. Do you get what I mean? But 
I kind of, you know, as, as Winton draws in, I kind of just think you need to be a little bit smarter sometimes. Mm. You know? but Kim Jones, but, who's head of Dior, is a genius. It's incredible. And he's another artists. artist. He's an artist. He's an incredible artist, but he takes history and re remakes it. You know, he'll take the MI1 jacket and turn it into a, a masterpiece of Dior. Do you know what I mean? Like a puffer jacket. Whatever he, he, he and he's it. looking at artists like Peter Doig and Moaka uh, Oh, Blasso come on, Peter and, the painter. And, yeah. So I love Peter Doig. Yeah, I used to, he... Uh, you know everyone. <laughs> Peter, <laughs> Peter was one of my first crushes ever. Yeah. And I actually I thought he was that. a painter and decorator. Everyone used to call him Peter the Painter, and I'd be like, oh, I'd love him to paint my house. <laughs> uh, I was, it cost you about two million. I was obsessed but yeah. with him, and he was like, and then he used to play hockey, and when he told, uh, he went, I'm, I'll meet you after hockey, and I'd be like, oh, hockey, you know, like literally. And then I found out later on, you know, Derek, it was actually Derek that said to me, you do know he's, he, he paints pictures, and invited me to an exhibition, and I was like, I didn't know that. And after I went, so, but you know, and then when Kim rediscovered, like, re started using Peter's, one of the best Dior collections ever. Camouflage stuff. I yeah, mean, and it was I had like it in mountains. every. You know me. I had it in every colour. Um, do you hold on to it? Do you archive I, 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 I hold on to everything. Yeah, when it comes to clothing, you know, I never used to. I, there's a really famous story in my book about the Keith Haring trainers. Like Keith would paint me stuff. He'd mm. go, oh, "Let give me them," and it'd sit and it silver pens felt tip them and paint them. And I had like a jacket with the two dogs shagging on the back. Mm. I had little men on my trainers. I had my name on them and keep, uh, I lost one train. I threw one train over the roof of Paradise Garage on the closing night. Took it off and I went like, this is the laces. And because other people were throwing trainers, so I took one of my shoes off and it went over the top of the roof. It was like a celebration of like saying goodbye. Yeah, saying goodbye. It was like, it was like two o'clock in the afternoon. And, uh, and I literally was like, yeah, trying to be the biggest show off. And off went the trainer. I went home with the one trainer how much would they be worth now? <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like a hand-painted keep hiring trainers. It's like... In some but, ways, you're... you just... It was a matter of, like, for me... You're in the moment. It's not, you it can't was think, in the moment. You, you I don't think I'm going to hold on to yeah. these because yeah, these, yeah. these are going to be worth something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I didn't think like that. Today, I, I, I hold on to things, uh, work of art, whether it be Chapman Brothers, whether it be... You know, I've got stuck, you know, Tracy, Emmy. You've become really good friends with Tracy. I love, yeah. you know, wow. The, out of all the, out of darkness comes really amazing light. And she's one of those things that happened. You know, I wrote the proof of my book and I sent it to her. She messaged me, first of all, on, on Instagram, uh, randomly saying, hey, I've I read something about you and I really like it. And she'd just gone through what she was going through, is still going through. Yeah. And I was like, wow. So I sent her, I said, I'd really like you to read it. And she supported it from that minute that she got it. And she read my trauma. You know, we've had similar trauma in so many ways. And she read that and she read, you know, she read between the lines and saw it. And, you know, she sent me a really beautiful picture called uh, Time is Our Friend. Um, there was a picture of her drawing and the clock. And it was just, it blew me away. Mm. Just the letter. As well, that got mm. that's it's still sitting on the side in my living room. When we when they said you were going to do talk art, I thought, go get that framed, go yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. get, get that on the wall. But, you know, she's I'd incredibly like, generous, she's, she's incredible, yeah. you know. And there's been moments in my life where people have given me things that have really got me out of bad situations. Well, I like, want to talk about that because 
you know, in the art world, there's this thing about you own art as a collector, and if you sell art, it seems bad in no. some ways. But you, you've had experiences where it's actually saved your life. The reason I was given it was to sell it. The reason I was given it was because it would save my life. You know, I was given a Banksy many years ago, and it was probably the only thing I ever owned at that point in time. What was it an image of? It was uh, the, the uh, Jesus, and it was on canvas. Wow. And I had that, and I also had a, a Mr. Brainwash. Kate, <laughs> Mr. Bra he'd done this big picture of Kate, which is everywhere, by the way, the same picture. I had the original. Whoa. And he gave it to her, and she was like, I fucking hate it. And I was like, <laughs> I was like, I'll have it. <laughs> and off it, off it went into the back of an Addison Lee. And uh, I had him as, and uh, you know, then I um, got to the age of 50 and I, you know, realised I hadn't paid tax my entire life. And you, know, <laughs> and you know, when you get to this point in your life where you think, oh, I've got to grow up, and I, you know, because I would wake up in the middle of the night at 2 a.m. and I'd have a brown envelope through my door and I would be like, whoa. You know, and not open them because I knew it in fear of going to prison for not paying tax all your life. You know, you have to own up to this stuff. You know, as soon as you get sober, you become responsible and, and you have to take on those responsibilities. And it's a really massive, massive thing. So anyone that, you, if you know someone who's got sober or who, who have, have come back from the, the brink of, of death with addiction, Always support them because you know you don't know what only it's not only about putting down drink and drugs it's about rebuilding everything, everything, you know. And I I hadn't had a bank account, <laughs> so I always got paid in cash, you know. I had companies when I had my record deals that I bought houses with and and management that always looked after me. I was always looked after, mm. and suddenly I was a junkie on my own. I had to rebuild everything on my own. And so ta paying tax was a big thing. And I would lay awake thinking, you're going to go to prison, you're going to go to prison. So I went, a friend of mine, Kate, said to me, I'll come and see my accountant here, really help you. I went and saw them, and they asked me all those questions. Like, when did you last pay? Uh, 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 so, but, you know, luckily, thank you, God, you can only go back seven years. <laughs> uh, so, you know, and they, I got the biggest tax bill of my life, and I was like, wow, how do I pay that? I've just started to rebuild my life. And there it was on the wall. And I just thought, it was given to me for that reason. I knew that at that moment it had to go. And it was like, you know, I sold it to a friend who still got it, who said, any time I ever want it back, I'll oh. it back. Yeah, I don't know whether he stick to that, though. But, you know. The street art is a thing you're street drawn art, to. But street art is street art. It's there to be given away. It's on a wall, right? You know, I've got original Banksy Princess Diana note from outside the cash point picture on, on um, Rosebury Avenue, mm -hmm. the day that he did it. What is that? Tell me about he that did a, He did a, 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 a ATM. ATM with a robot arm. And it's still there today underneath Perspex, but it's been sprayed over. And it had all Princess Diana 20 pound notes coming out of 10 pound notes coming out of it. Uh, made up like double-sided. Um, and I, I, I went around and took them off the wall and we got some of them. Uh, obviously, over the years, they, we gave them away. But, you know, it's, I've got that. You know, it's, it's, there's bits of art that I really keep. And now, my house, I have so much art. You and, do, yeah. And it is street art, yeah. You know, I see stuff, you know, I've got a, a massive smiley Chapman Brothers, do you want to be an our gang on my, on my living room wall, the glitter one. Um, and Do you, you know, see yourself as a collector? I see myself as, uh, I don't, you know, I've never really collected anything apart from resentments. <laughs> you know, I don't, I don't really, you know, I, 
I, I, I love what I see. And I kind of like, you know, I'll get to a point in my life where I think, oh, I don't like that anymore. And that will come off the wall and that will go over there, you know. Just recently, someone just did this massive picture of me. Um, oh, yeah, you posted it on Instagram. Yeah, which is like, he came to my house, this guy, he's, his name's Ian, he's, he's from Northern Ireland. And um, it, it was the most mentalist picture I've ever seen. It's like, uh, he came to my house and he was like, okay, he wants to spend the afternoon with me. And I was like, okay. And we did breathing for an hour and a half, which was really, really good. Meditated, sitting in front of each other. First time you've done that? Uh, in a long time, yeah. My meditation is Coronation Street. You know, that's like, I'll sit and I'll be in another world, you know, and then I kind of come round. And like, <laughs> what, 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 I've been, yeah. you know, and, and my boyfriend's like, why are you watching that, Rose? I'm like, not even watching it. I'm like, I just zone out, you know. Yeah. That's meditation to me. That's kind of like, or we put a movie on and within three minutes I'm asleep. I never ever, you know, it's like drag race. I never get to the, I never get to the lip sync. I'm always asleep, always asleep by the by the by the challenge, always, because um, it's my ADHD. I just as soon as I see it, I crash. I'm like, oh, ow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and then I'm like awake, and you know, um, what was I talking about? Ian, the oh yeah, so Ian came to my house and he wanted to do these breathing exercises, and I was like, fine. And then he was like, okay, I want you to sit in front of me, uh, in in my pants, right. Mm-hmm. and stare into my eyes. And I was like... And after like 10 minutes of it, I was kind of thinking, oh, this is really difficult. And then it went to a place of emotion. And of course, I... It's such damaged goods that I link emotion with sex. I link anything with sex because sex is a way to change the way I feel. And because I was feeling uncomfortable, I sexualized it. And he said, how are you feeling? I said, I'm feeling quite sexual, actually. And he was like, and he was like, okay, that's the emotion. And it was kind of like, you know, he really Is he a felt, therapist as well as an artist? I, when he comes to my house with the picture to do the unveil, the reveal of it, and I was like, because I hadn't seen it. And he sent it to Stabby and my boyfriend, Stabby was like, you're going to, it's going to blow you away. And I was just like, and uh, he took the cover off and I was like, whoa. I literally was just like, and I was quiet for like three or four minutes. And he was like, do you like it? And I was like, I don't know. I don't know, yeah. I don't know if I like it. Because it was really you, probably. It was real. Wow. And you know, the, the trauma in that picture. Oh my God. It's, uh, it's mind blowing. And I just, it literally, it, it's such an emotional piece. And it's called the serenity prayer. And it's like, it's not how I would see myself. It's not how I want to see myself. But it does, you can recognise Oh my God, in it. straight away. Yeah. It, it, it shows you everything that I've been through in my life. It's in that picture, in my face. And, you know, it's, and, and, I, and he filmed me and I was like, it's not how I would want the world to see me. Wow. Which shows you that I'm still not at that point in my life where... I always say you can ask me anything and I'll tell you anything. And, and, and I did that in the book and I talked about that trauma in the book. So much trauma in that book. But yeah, I'm still not accepting of that trauma, all of it. And that picture says that to me. So it's now on my bedroom wall. Oh, you kept it? I was oh, going to yeah. say. Oh, no, it, I was you, like, oh, thank you. Is it not you. hard to live with? Well, I, start, I kind of was like, okay, thanks. Uh, it's great. Where's it going? Is it going in an exhibition? He went, no, I want you to have it. And I was like, I was like, 
whether you put something this big of your, your face, like, we tried it above the fireplace, and it was like, and, it, and I was like moving it around, and I was like, well, maybe it could go in the spare room, and I said, no, it can't go in the spare room, it doesn't do it justice, it's a beautiful thing. So it's in your bedroom? So it's on the bedroom wall there, and it's really funny, because we had it resting at the door, and Stabby woke up and went, like that, and I, like, <laughs> I woke up in the middle, and I was like, what, and what, what, thinking, and he was like, the bloody picture, and I was like, oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's me. Yeah. <laughs> it's their baby. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's on the bedroom wall at the moment. But is that not hard to live so close to that vulnerability? <laughs> you know what? I don't have to look at it. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? But it's a really good thing to remind me that I need to look at that stuff. I need to look at that stuff daily. It's a good reminder every wow. morning to look at it and think, okay, that's who I was and that's not where I need to be. You know, because, um, you know, I'm in a really good place. I'm probably in the best place I've ever been in my life and I mean it like hand on heart. I really am at the best place in my life. I, um, I don't feel fat, I don't feel old, but you know what, I, I, I'm in the best relationship, I'm in the most transparent relationship. I don't have any secrets, because someone like me that, that thrives on secrecy, you know, I, I've made a life of, of lying and not telling anyone the truth, because I was always scared that you wouldn't accept me if you knew the truth. You know, I, w I was always scared that people would judge me and not like me if they knew the real me. And when I wrote that book, I put everything in it. And I mean everything in it. You know, I would wake up at 3 a.m. in the morning thinking, what have you done? Why have you put that in there? Why have you disclosed to the world about HIV? Why have you disclosed to the world about being abused? Why have you, you know, all of this stuff that we carry around with us, that shame that we carry with us into every relationship, into every part of our lives. It's not like something we lock in a cupboard and we, we go to every time we want to feel bad about ourselves. That's with us. That's like, you know, me carrying around 800 pounds of like concrete in a rucksack yeah, yeah. on my back. It's constantly with me. And that, tells me, you know, that stuff holds me back. I can't run with that on my back. I can't jog. I can't go places. You know, I can't move forward because I am stuck with that trauma. And by writing that trauma and getting rid of that trauma, my life's just become so clear and transparent. And, you know, I'm in a relationship with someone that I met a long time ago. Um, I would just come out of a relationship when I was writing the book uh, of eight years of, of pure and utter disease it was like real awful disease you know there was no ease ever in that relationship and it was traumatic and you know and then i met this met stavros and uh just changed my life oh you know what Every, he knows everything there is to know about me there is not one part that he doesn't know well he'd have to, if he didn't he just reads the book right yeah, yeah exactly <laughs> he know everything. I mean. but the weird thing is you know the, the book's been such a great success. Sunday Times bestseller. Yeah, Round of applause, award winning. Surely. I mean, amazing. Award winning. Award winning. <laughs> yeah. uh, but you know, it's like it, the success of it is like the fact that even if one person had read it and, and related to it, that is a success in so many ways. But the amount of people that come up to me with their kids and say, I've just read your book wow. at the airport, like the other day coming back, like four people on the bus at the IB for airport, they still have buses to go to the plane, were talking to me about the book, and then the woman next to me on the plane. Like just non stop, it happens all the time. And it, they're not only reading your book, they know your trauma. There's a real weirdness to it, like the fact that they know everything there is to know about me. And they're not like written, oh, I love your book you've written about. 
the Gruffalo. Do you know what I mean? It's not like that. It's basically, they know every dark secret that I have because I put it in that book. Uh, you know what I just realised? there's something really, really, really freeing about that. You were just talking about, so you're going to publish the paperback of, of I Don't Take Requests, yeah. this book we're talking about, and you're trying to find an image for the front. Maybe the image is the painting. Yeah, maybe. I think so. Oh, no, no. I want people to buy it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the painting's a really beautiful thing when people yeah. come... My, my friend Claire, who lives around the corner... She's not friends, she's a neighbour, Claire Sweeney. And then she's my friend. She goes, lives around the corner. <laughs> she's not a friend, she's a neighbour. Some weeks I, I, I demote her to neighbour. And then other weeks she's like, oh, I love her. She, uh, she come round she's like crying. You know, oh. my mum cried at it. Wow. It's, it, he's such a talented artist, and it's just like the emotion that's in that picture is like, kind of like... People go, oh, my God, you can really see it, and I'm like, do I really look like that? Do you get what I mean? Mm -hmm. Well, before we get on to the final questions, just something existential. Do you see art, whether it be music, visual arts, fashion, as therapy, as something that can help? A hundred percent. Why? A hundred percent, because, you know, it has the power to take us out of ourselves. You know, we can relate to certain things, you know. There's certain, some people really relate to certain colours, you know. Dyslexic people really relate to red and to yellow and different colours. It, it kind of eases their minds. And, and I think with art, when we look at stuff, and, and it's, you know, whether you, if you've ever done the journey at Tate Britain of, of British art, from right at the beginning, right the way round, you know, they had Tracy's bed in there for a while. But, you know, you do that gallery and you just take in the, the you know, whether it be the landscapes or the portraits or any of that stuff, it, it, it just has this ability to make you think outside of yourself. Like, oh, my God, what would it have been like in those days? Oh, my God, the way they dressed, everything. You know, it, it, it's such a, a, an amazing experience if you allow it to be. Mm. Art has that magic if you allow it it's the same with music. If you go to a, a club and you think, oh, I hate this music, instead of actually standing there thinking, oh, this is really good, and like getting that energy off other people that are having mm. a good time, you have a good time. If you go to a gallery or you look at something within, within in, in, being dismissive before you even get there, or you, you know, it's that old thing of like, oh, I, don't eat, I don't like olives. Have you ever eaten olives? <laughs> See what I mean? And it's like, oh my God, I love olives. And it, and, and it is like that, you know, and I just think that all of us want to be an artist in some way or form, I think. You know, whether, you know, you can make a joke of it and go, yeah, I'm a piss artist or I'm this or that. But, you know, we all want to be really good at what we do. Mm -hmm. And that, that's art. You know, that is art. You know, if you're a good driver of a car and you're a racing driver, that's an art form. I think if you can reverse round a corner in a van, Listen, that's, that's an art form. Anything at all. <laughs> reverse you, a truck, I'm like... But you, you know what I'm saying to you? Yeah, everything yeah. that we do, and, and, and I think art is about continuing to learn and to open up your mind and actually keep on learning and taking on stuff. You know, I, I, I always think, oh, you know, I hear people go, oh, I only play this type of music, and I'm like... What are you doing? Why are you even doing being it? Why are you playing? You know, you're you're not a DJ. You're a selector. There's a difference between selecting music because you're selecting it and you're choosing what you want to hear and what you think everyone else wants to hear, and DJing and feeling a crowd and not worrying whether you're playing "Show Me Love," which everyone else thinks is cheesy, at that magical moment that would that define everybody's night. And that's the same with art. You know, it's about doing 
what you believe is the magic and putting it out there and letting magic happen. You're a composer, really. My job is to to make people dance. That's what I do for a living. I make people have well, memories. You, you played my 40th, I had a secret 40th birthday oh, party yeah, and you DJed that, that and it was just magic. It was fun, wasn't it? It was the best night ever. I can't remember any of it, but it was brilliant. <laughs> yeah, you were slut dropping. <laughs> you were slut dropping and death dropping. Yeah, I was yeah. doing all that. All those. Yeah. Well, I mean, you only turn 40 once, don't you? So. I thought it was your 50th. <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> um, so the final questions we get onto with every talk card guest, this has been amazing. If you could do an art heist, you could steal any work of art in the world for yourself nicely, what would it be and why? It would be the toilet tiles of the LGBTQI centre in New York, which Keith did. Yes. And they unearthed them. They had wooden panels over them for many years and they didn't know they were there. And then when they were renovating the toilets to turn it into the LGBT centre, they removed these panels and they had these red, white painted tiles all the way around the room. Uh, I would love that. This I would is, love this that. This is called Once Upon a Time. It's incredible. Yeah. And you know, it makes my hair stand on end because it's just. He painted that at a really, really poignant point in his life. And you know, and it, the fact that it was preserved behind boards mm. for so long and wasn't demolished uh, is, is just is an incredible thing. And you can go and see it if you're ever there. You're allowed to. If you go into the centre, yep. they will open the toilet. The toilet's not always open. But it's on the first floor as you go up. Floor, it's not right. a working toilet now. It's no. just you can see where the cubicles used to be. But if you look up, it goes all the way around. All the way around. It's but it's safe freeze, sex. It's or, very sexualised. Yes, it is. But it's safe sex. It's safe sex because it come at that point in time when, you know, we come from an era where people have forgot, like to forget or don't like to talk about the fact that. We lost our entire peer groups to, to AIDS. It was, it's never spoken about, you know, uh, because it, it didn't affect certain communities. Um, it, was, it was kind of pushed under the carpet, you know. It wasn't only about falling tombstones on television. You know, it was about what the, that epidemic did to people. And Keith was really, really in the middle of that. Mm. And he painted it and his art was about that, you know, when you look at some of the pictures of Keith, that Keith painted, were all about safe sex, all about getting tested, all about, and they're so poignant today and they're so important today. You know, National Coming Out Day, the Keith Haring, you know, I'm, I, you know. It's walking out of a closet. It's just yeah. incredible stuff, do you know what I mean? That's, that's art, that's street art. And you know, when you, we use the word street so freely, because it's done on the street, but it, it's, it's people's art. It relates to all of us, and that's what street art is. And that's why Banksy's so successful, because he paints stuff that we all think, right, but we don't say. And it's the same with Keith. He was doing exactly the same thing. He was bringing that stuff mm. to, by the, by, the, by the, you know, when I work with people and, who are getting off drugs or, or wanting to get clean, and, they, and I, I, I start to take, I work a 12-step program, I start to take them through the steps. They always say, oh, can I do this on my computer? And I'm like, no, you can't. It's the power of the brain to the pen that changes everything. As soon as you sit and you start to write, you have this thought process, you open up this part of the brain that doesn't, you know, I just done a year of trauma therapy, intense trauma therapy, and I was sitting on my, cross-legged on the floor with crowns, drawing, like stick men and pictures, 
because it opens up this part of the brain that we, we keep close, that talking, if we talk about trauma, we don't go to those places. But you'll be drawing but, the but trauma. But if you draw it, it's oh, a wow. whole different ballgame. And I think that's why so, so many artists, i.e. that guy Ian, could paint that trauma and you can see that trauma. And, you know, when I was doing my colouring in, she would go back on it and she'd be like, why did you do his hair that colour? And I'd be like, I don't know. And it's just... It, it just open, it, it's, it's a remarkable thing. Well, that leads me on to my next question. What is your favourite colour? My favourite colour, orange, I think. Why? I don't know. It's just something about it. It's just really... Bi- I bought an orange jacket the other day. From and, Dior? Uh, no, it wasn't actually. It was from oh. Gucci. Oh, OK. <laughs> <laughs> I literally was in yeah. there the other day. I'm an impulse buyer. And, uh, and Stabby was like, oh, you get, that'd be good for New York. And I was like, yeah, you're right. Yeah, well, sh- anyway, uh, and I, I put it on, and then Nadim, who works with me, was like, I said, do you like it? He was like, actually, no, I don't. Actually, I really don't. So my boyfriend was calling Nadim yesterday, uh, Nadim Winter. <laughs> <laughs> Nadim Winter. Yeah, though, like, you know, orange. Orange is, I don't know, it's, it's, um, it's not an easy colour. It's quite, you know, I think it's the, the, the vibrancy and the fire of it. The, you know, it's, it's not a comfortable colour. It's not something you think, oh, orange, let me relax. I think it's, it, it, it's kind of invigorating. Rob, if Rob was here, that's his favourite colour as well, and he would say it gives him vibrancy and life, and whenever he wears orange, he feels kind of very well, present. That's, that's what I'm saying to you. It's not something that you can be comfortable in. You yeah. can't be like, oh, I'm wearing orange. Do you know what I mean? That's kind of like blue or black, you know. Yeah, yeah. Grey is a good one to yeah. slump in, because it's a neither here or there colour, right? But, you know, when something's so vibrant, it kind of just like, you know, and also what it does is it gives you a really good glow on your skin because it does, you know, reflects. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You always look healthy when you wear orange. What is the best advice you've ever received when it comes to your art, when it comes to your work? Um, well, I would like to say shut up and listen uh, because that would kind of like, you know, the day that I start kind of listening to other people instead of my own head it was kind of like a day that kind of changed everything but i think the for my own art form for, for music the best advice was just don't be afraid don't be scared to do what you you feel that you should be doing whether it be playing a record three times in a set or playing something that everyone else would think was awful you know for a long time you know because what happens is you stop you do that you break those boundaries you know, quite simply, freed from desire. We, we, we've been playing it for like the last three years, two years at our brunches. Everyone was like, oh my God, you're playing that cheesy old track. Everywhere you go right now, you're hearing freed from desire. Because, you know, it's about pushing that and making people... It, people, it, it... The minute that you stop being scared is the minute that you take people to a new level or you take yourself to a new level. Because we live in fear. We live in fear and just get rid of that fear by getting, grabbing the ball by the horns and moving forward. Well, on that end, thank <laughs> you so much, Fat Tony. Uh, thank you, everyone, for being thank here today. Get a round of applause for Tony. <laughs> been, that was brilliant. Thank you, Excellent. Huh? Excellent. So thank you for listening to our very special live appearance at the Law Secret Podcast Experience. I had a fantastic time and as always, loved spending some quality time with DJ Fat Tony. That was an amazing listen, Russ. I am so, so, so jealous. I can't even explain. And uh, actually, I'm in need of a coffee. 
All right. Well, let's go and find that coffee then, shall we? <laughs> Thank you for listening, everyone. And we will be back very, very soon. Goodbye, guys. And if you're in need of a coffee too, then head to lawespresso.com to shop Law's delicious coffee range. Whoop, whoop. You've been listening to Talk Art with Robert Diamond and Russell Toby. Follow us on Instagram at Talk Art, where you can view images of all artworks discussed in today's episode, with music by Jack Northover. Subscribe to Talk Art at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Acast, or wherever it is that you get your podcasts. Give us a rating and write us a comment. Thanks for listening.